Every week, journalists at the University of Florida College of Journalism and Communications report important stories for the people of North Central Florida and beyond. This is a situation where I think that the school board has regrets um, about the processes that they had in place at the time, you know, to deal with, with property purchases. He walked into Turlington Hall searching for help. Um, he made it clear to the administrative people that were there that he was in fear of this person and he told the police the same. I realized that LARP is kind of a love story and a lot of people have found their significant others um, through this group. This is The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host today, Kristen Moorhead. I'll take you through the strongest reporting coming out of our newsroom and a discussion with the journalists who write these stories. So let's get into the stories from this week. In late September, Tanner Williams traveled to the University of Florida disguised as a security guard with the goal to prank students on camera for his YouTube channel. UF Police Department dismissed him with a citation for trespassing, but after Williams posted the video detailing how he harassed several students, he now faces felony charges that could land him up to five years in prison and a $5,000 fine. Producer Melissa Fato spoke to Fresh Take Florida reporter Mabel Serrato about this disturbing incident on UF's campus. We got a tip from someone um, and my editor reached out to me to start reporting on the story. Um, when we saw this video, pretty much what happened was that the identified person, Tanner Williams, um, he posts YouTube content all the time. He decided to pull a stunt um, here on campus, pretending to be a security guard. And like he was very persistent. Mm -hmm. um, in disturbing the peace in school. He was going up to students, trying to perform sobriety tests, ask someone to get off his bike and just follow whatever he was telling him, creating false scenarios of criminals, quote unquote, on campus, and just asking students to help him um, locate these people. But of course, they were imaginary, so... Right, you write that he was looking for, like, a fictional drug dealer. Right, yes. He came on campus and asked some people if they had spotted this person, which we found out was a character from a TV show. It was just very strange. Um, in the video, he appears to be, in like, consuming drugs on campus. Um, and strange, oddly enough, when we interviewed him, he said he did not have any drugs on campus at all. So he was impersonating a security officer, correct? He was in costume, essentially. Yes, he was wearing a black and white, I mean, excuse me, a black and yellow shirt um, with the word security in the front and in the back of his shirt um, with a two-way walkie-talkie. Um, he had a whistle on him. He had handcuffs on him. And I think that what really took off the entire look was his attitude um, and when I spoke to UFPD they said they didn't have enough information when they located him on campus but once they saw the video and they saw that he was very coercive against some people that's when they found probable cause to charge him. Right and I want to get to those charges um, but yeah that all sounds pretty 
pretty stressful for students. And you write that there was a student who ran from him um, because she was afraid of him and did end up running into, a, I believe, the anthropology building, correct? Um, it was it was a male student. Oh, a male student. He, yes. He walked into Turlington Hall searching for help. Um, he made it clear to the administrative people that were there that he was in fear of this person, and he told the police the same. So he has been charged. Tell me about those charges. So when we first started reporting on the story, he hadn't been charged um, at the time. There was probable cause, like I said, so we saw it coming, but I think the arrest warrant or search warrant was released until Wednesday. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I interviewed him, oddly enough, he was not aware of these charges. Um, He thought that he was only being reprimanded with a trespassing citation on campus. So he's now facing a felony charge for impersonating an official. And did you speak to um, UFPD? I did. I I came in contact with Captain Rich Taylor, and we talked to him about the entire incident, and they helped in giving us a lot of details for what happened on that day. These matters at this point are not even being handled by UFPD anymore. It's that he's being prosecuted by Alachua County. Mm. Um, So like I said, when they found him and located him, they didn't have enough reason or enough evidence to charge him with anything rather than the trespassing citation. So now it's really just up to the court and what's going to happen next. So you spoke to uh, this person, Tanner Williams. Um, Tell me about him. Is he from Alachua County? Why did he come to UF? He's not from Alachua County. I believe he's originally from Jacksonville, um, but he resides in Palm Beach now. I'm not fully sure why he came to UF. I think it's more the fact that UF is a big name and he just wants a lot of views on his um, YouTube videos. But he was also in UNF, the University of North Florida, a couple of weeks before coming to UF. There's not much that I can say about this person rather than he seems to be very okay with any consequences that come from his videos really because he made it very clear that he's still willing to post more content on YouTube. So tell me about his YouTube channel. I mean, what kind of content would you see there? All all you really see is pranks. Um, sometimes they're performed by himself. Sometimes there's been group pranks. I mentioned in the story as well that he's facing charges in California with a couple other YouTubers um, for getting into a fake altercation with one another and knocking over some baked goods in a Walmart. So you say that now the charges are being, they're being brought by the county. So do you have any idea of what's next in this process? So when I spoke to UFPD, they told me that Alachua County is going to have to reach out to the county where he's residing at now, which I believe he's in Duval. I I believe he's back in Jacksonville. And they're going to have to search for him and arrest him. And Mm. as far as I know, I checked last night, so Wednesday night, um, and he hasn't been arrested yet. I see. This seems so far like somewhat of an isolated incident, um, but you never know. Did UFPD say at all um, what they might do in the future to prevent these kinds of this kind of harassment, um, either by Williams or by another individual? 
So um, if you take a look at the video, there was some debate on whether or not it was adequate for the police officers that took charge of the situation to be so friendly with him. In the end of the video, you can see he asks the officers to right. pose with him for a picture. They take a selfie, right? Right, yeah. and, and, and they took the picture with him. So I asked UFPD, you know, we have incidents happen on campus often. A couple weeks ago, we had a rape incident occur on campus. And I said, you know, in a time where security is supposed to be heightened on campus, why do you think the police officers were so willing and compliant with him after the fact that he had disturbed around campus and harassed some of our students here? And they said that one, they didn't have the evidence that they have now from the YouTube video, which has actually been taken down by Williams. And two, they always try to promote um, a safe relationship between students and officers. Is there anything else that you want to point out that we haven't talked about that you think is important to the story? I think just the way that the story presented itself was very interesting. At first, it started as a silly prank. You know, we didn't know that this man was going to face these charges and a felony, a third degree felony. Um, you don't see that all the time, especially not in a 27 year old. And oddly enough, you know, UFPD made it clear that had he not posted this video, there would have been no evidence to charge him with anything. That was Fresh Take Florida reporter Mabel Serrato speaking with producer Melissa Fato about a YouTube stunt pulled on UF's campus that landed the prankster in serious legal trouble. Behold the shepherd tone. The Tinkerbell effect. Hillbilly humanism. The Overton window. Hyper objects. The Bill Gates problem. The Zuckerberg delusion. Times are changing, and so is our vocabulary. Apodophobia. The public trust. Parasocial relations. The anti-bandwagon fallacy. Monopoly and monopsony. Let On the Media be your guide as we explore the future together. Sunday morning at 10 on WUFT 89.1, 90.1. This is The Rewind. I'm Kristen Moorhead. A land deal between local real estate agents and Alachua County Public Schools recently resulted in the district buying the property at a high price. Producer Ariana Aspuru spoke to Fresh Take Florida reporters Houston Harwood and Anna Wilder about their investigative reporting of this deal. Yeah, so the, the two real estate agents involved, Dan Drotos and Mike Riles, they're longtime established agents in the area very successful agents. They previously worked with Boss Art Realty Services and you know, recently set up their own group under the Colliers International firm, which is a, it's a large multinational company. You know, they have a long history in Gainesville, but from our reporting, they don't have a ton of experience working with government agencies. You know, they worked on the land deal in 2018 to sell this property to a developer and they started uh, you know, working with the school board to help the school board acquire the property. When it comes to, to this specific scenario, kind of what role did they play in this purchase of the, of the property? Well, the agents maintain that they acted as what are called transaction brokers, which is pretty common in commercial real estate where the agent or the broker doesn't really represent either party in the deal. They kind of just facilitate the transaction. 
you know, school board officials are concerned because, you know, they say that it was difficult for them to really ascertain what role the agents were playing in the deal. Some school board officials like Tina Certain said that it, at points they were under the impression that the agents represented the school board. There's confusion about the agent's role in the deal and how that evolved over time because originally they worked at Bossart and they moved to Collier's. And so really the issue that for on the on the school board side is that, you know, they, they feel that they never really fully understood the role that the agents played in the deal, whether they represented the school board or not. And now the school board is looking at, um, you know, how they can prevent things like that from happening in the future. And in the first place, what were some of their motivations for purchasing it? Did they have plans to begin with? Yeah, so the school board uh, identified a problem with overcrowding in certain West Gainesville schools. And so there were plans to identify a site that would be um, a good site to host a new, I think, elementary school or potentially middle school. Um, in West Gainesville to relieve that overcrowding. And so that's, you know, that's what kind of triggered this property search. And so now have those plans kind of been thrown out because of the, all the issues with the pricing and the, and the property itself. So now they're just kind of waiting to see what happens. Is that, is that what's going on? Simon didn't give a specific reason for why they aren't building a school on this site. Simon and other board members have raised concerns that the board has access to donated land and they'd already identified a site where they could have constructed a school. So going forward, I'm not aware of their specific plans um, to build any new West Gainesville schools. But in terms of this property, Simon uh, was pretty adamant that there are currently no plans to build a school on the site and that they're exploring options to sell it in the future. And Going back to the, the process itself of how the school board bought the property, I mean, in my head, I think of uh, a lot of different studies that have to be done or like evaluations of the property itself. So can you kind of explain to me a little bit more how this exactly happened? Like, how were they able to sway the price up without the school board really being aware? Was it just miscommunication? Was it just confusion? Like kind of what happened? When we first started looking at this, Houston and I originally reported on the two agents allegedly stealing proprietary documents from their former employer, Boss Hart. And that was the information that we originally started with, that, you know, there was some kind of uh, alleged stealing of trade secrets from Boss Hart Realty, and now they're at Collier's. But what a lot of people were not aware of was that when they moved from Boss Hart to Collier's, from our understanding, it was that they took the school board deal with them. So when they were originally at Boss Hart and Boss Hart was working with the school board and that was the deal that was going on, they were still pursuing the property. It was like nothing had changed. But when they moved agencies, they told Boss Hart, the deal is dead, like, you know, we're not pursuing this anymore. You know, to be very clear, this is a situation where I think that the school board has regrets um, about the processes that they had in place at the time, you know, to deal with, with property purchases. When the deal first started at the school board, you know, the agents made it clear that 
the school board would be able to purchase the property for well below this $4 million price tag. And Paul White, who is then the assistant superintendent, also made it clear that the school board would be purchasing the land without these entitlements being factored in. Now, the issue with the deal is that when the first appraisals of the property are being conducted, Drodos and Riles supplied the appraiser with DR Horton's $4 million offer. And so from the very beginning, the appraisals took into account these residential neighborhood construction entitlements. And throughout this whole time period, the uh, owner of the property was working to get those entitlements and whatnot approved by the county. And so by the time the school board actually goes to purchase the land, you know, the property is valued like it's going to be used to construct a neighborhood. And that drastically increases the value of the property. The problem for the school board is that they aren't building a neighborhood. They're building a school. So, you know, they don't really have any use for these entitlements. And to be fair, Paul White and and some other people at the school board claim that, you know, the property was worth the high price that they paid. But as we stated, there are currently no plans to to build anything on the property. In your reporting, were you able to reach out to these real estate agents and did you get any response? Yes, we uh, we would never publish a story like this without going through a lot of effort to reach the people that the story discusses. And um, we did get responses back. They directed us to their attorney, Ron Kozlowski. We've had discussions with him and the agents speaking to their attorney stand by their role in this deal. And, you know, they would say that this is something that the school board mishandled, not them. And in the story, you mentioned that this whole reporting process took about two months. What were some of the challenges with reporting it? There were what we felt like a million moving parts. And it seems like at some points we were getting information, new information about developments and what was happening with the deal. And those were the challenges. But it also, at least for me, has taught me a lot about how to do investigative reporting. And I'm really proud of the finished project. I think that it's given us both the ability to really try out some new skills and also write a great story about real estate. (laughs) That was producer Ariana Aspuru talking to Fresh Take Florida reporters Houston Harwood and Anna Wilder about Alachua County Public Schools buying a piece of land at a much higher price than they thought. Big ideas are reshaping our world. From our jobs. If they're paying you way more than you expected to get, ask yourself, what is it exactly they want you to do? To what we eat. That message that we've finally made the sweet that your body wants. Yeah, that ad changed the world. New ideas come to life every week on Innovation Hub. Sunday morning at 11 on WUFT 89.1, Rewind from WUFT News. I'm Kristen Moorhead. Halloween isn't the only day in costume for the Dystopia Rising community. Every month, these Dystopia role players travel from across the state to a campground in Marion County. Producer Sarah Mandel spoke with WUFT reporter Avery Lotz about what this community does and who its members are. 
So my story is about Dystopia Rising, which is a live action role play group that has branches across the United States. Um, I found out about the Florida branch and I just really wanted to delve into first how their world was impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic because I thought it was almost a little bit ironic that they're in this post-apocalyptic world having to deal with a global pandemic. It just seems like a really interesting kind of twist on the story. And then at the same time, I just really wanted to delve into what kind of people do this? You know, Is there a, a set type of person who's involved in the live action role play world? And what I found is there really isn't. It's an extremely accepting community, extremely diverse community. So it was really beautiful just hearing all of the you know, personal experiences, the things people have overcome through being involved in this, uh, the love stories that have blossomed through this. So it was just really interesting to hear about this world that I knew nothing about that was you know, a couple minutes away from where I live. How did you find this story? I had done stories in the past uh, about psychics and about things that are, you know, maybe a little bit off the beaten path. And I just wanted to look into things like that that really interested me. So I just started, you know, kind of Googling Halloween words after Gainesville. So I'm pretty sure what I looked up was Gainesville zombies. And then I saw the Facebook group come up for Dystopia Rising Florida. And I clicked on it and I was kind of scrolling through the posts and some of the things people had written, some little storylines and things like that just really grabbed my attention. They were so beautifully written. I was like, wow, it's a really talented group of people. What is this? I realized there were 1500 people in the Facebook group. I went on their website and I just found all of these manuals about, uh, you know, storylines, about props, about, you know, directions for getting involved. And it just seemed like this incredible world that I had heard nothing about, that so much time and effort had gone into constructing this fantasy. And I just wanted to know who the people were behind it. Could you describe in some more detail how this group is organized and what the members do? Yeah. So each branch will have an owner. And so um, Murphy that I interviewed, uh, he's the branch owner for the Florida branch. And underneath him, there's a logistics manager. That was Keegan. There are um, head story writers. So uh, Bethan that I interviewed, she was the head of story. Um, Sky, his fia uh, Murphy's fiance, actually, she is in charge of all the props. So there are some paid staff members, actually, some of those people who are actually kind of doing this as another little part-time job on top of their day job. But there's others that are really just volunteers and kind of how it works going into a game is they'll write some little leads, some advances almost, if you will, going in about, all right, this is what the setting is. This is kind of the storyline we're starting off on, but it's very, you know, kind of vague, open to interpretation. People will write little teasers about what they think their character is going to do for the weekend, kind of just getting people excited, almost like getting people hyped up. Um, and then once they actually get to the monthly weekend games, it is all improv and they are in character the entire time. There's actually a rule when I was looking through their rule book that they should be in character when they sleep. So their tents or if they're staying in tents or a bunk bed is decorated to character. I know they mentioned one person who brought an RV and they totally decked out their RV, completely decorated like it was in this post-apocalyptic zombie world. And so from the time they get there on the afternoon Friday to the time they leave on Sunday, they are completely another character. Um, and everyone takes turns acting as extras kind of, I suppose, is kind of what they are, they call them. Um, so these extras would be, you know, zombies, bad guys, kind of, that would just be milling about, that would kind of be obstacles to the game. So everyone kind of takes turns being their own character or being kind of an extra character. So that's usually how it works. And uh, yeah, and then they prepare for the next game. 
Why is this group important to the people who participate in it? What are some of their experiences with it? Yeah, I think um, Bethany kind of said it best when she said this place has always been a safe, a safe space, whether that's for LGBTQ plus um, members, whether that's for women, they're the, uh, the uh, only LARP that has majority women, she said. Um, and so I think that's something that's uh, really important about this group, that it's extremely open, extremely accepting, very diverse, and they're continuing to work on those diversity and inclusion efforts. Um, at the same time, I think uh, one thing I, I realized that LARP is kind of a love story, and a lot of people have found their significant others um, through this group. I think everyone I, I interviewed actually found their significant other through Dystopia Rising. Um, which I thought was really beautiful, you know, kind of meeting someone, especially in this other character, you know, you're, you're playing as maybe their enemy, and then you realize that there's something really interesting about this person, get to know them as your character and as your true self, and I thought that was really interesting, and then on top of it, I think it's become a really important means of self-expression for a lot of people. I know Keegan mentioned him having kind of this full cathartic moment in one of his first games where he just kind of broke down and cried because things started to feel so real. And he felt himself feeling his real life anxieties through the game and being able to cope with them in a way that he couldn't necessarily in the real world. Um, and not to say necessarily that it's an escape. I think it's a means of people to cope with the things that they're experiencing just in another way. It's They said, you know, therapy is expensive. So we LARP is what they told me. So I think it's become a great uh, tool for mental health as well. You mentioned that one of the things that made you interested in doing the story is you were curious about how COVID affected them. What did you find about that? Well, COVID has impacted them a lot. I believe it was March 2020, they said when they first went online. So they were playing um, kind of within the realm of Discord, which is like a service that a lot of gamers use to communicate. Um, so they had chat rooms on Discord, things like that, um, live video chats. Uh, and the staff members would kind of facilitate those chats, which became really overwhelming for them because they'd be, I think for like 48 hours, they'd just be glued to the computer, you know, checking in on everyone, making sure everything was going well. No one was having any technical difficulties. I know Nathan and Murphy mentioned that they went and stayed at a friend's house and their friend cooked them food and made sure they were eating and, and you know, staying healthy during that because it was such a overwhelming experience for them. Um, so they've really had to adjust. Um, but uh, Keegan did say it was an opportunity for a lot of the branches to come together and work together to figure out how to cope with this because it was such an unprecedented situation. Um, I know he said he, then the staff members of the Florida branch and of the Georgia branch became extremely close in a way they never maybe would have before um, working together to just facilitate um, to continue the interaction and make sure people were able to still have this uh, every month. So they stayed online. And then when numbers started to look better, they went back in person in July and in August um, with some really extensive uh, cleaning measures with, you know, making sure everyone was comfortable, social distanced, everything of that sort. But unfortunately, they did have to go back online again with the threat of the Delta variant. Um, so they're really just doing everything they can to make people safe, even if it's not the ideal situation, but still just to have this important element of people's lives still occurring in any way that they can. Is there anything you want to add that we didn't get to touch on? Yeah, I think the only thing I'd want to add is just kind of reiterate that this may be a group that maybe people would have misconceptions about. 
but there are a lot of incredibly extroverted, successful, wonderful people who are involved in this. Um, I think Bethan said it best when she said, you know, we're the group of people that you'd go and run around with sticks in the woods with on the weekend, and then you'd go grab a beer with us the next day. They are extremely warm, extremely, for lack of a better word, normal. Not that anybody's necessarily normal, but they were just really, really kind people. They're Maybe they're, you know, killing zombies on the weekends, but during the week, they're extremely warm, extremely kind, extremely willing to tell people about this world and so welcoming. That was WUFT reporter Avery Lotz talking to producer Sarah Mandile about a live action role play community in Marion County. Make sure to join us next Sunday, where we'll be showcasing the best stories coming out of WUFT News. The Rewind from WUFT News is produced by Ariana Espuru, Sarah Mandile, Kristen Moorhead, and Melissa Fato. Our executive producer is Sky LeBron. WUFT News is operated out of the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. I'm Kristen Moorhead. Thanks for listening.